Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. A photo for the history books and a former president who is once again out on bond. Donald Trump gets his mugshot moment after surrendering to authorities in Fulton County, Georgia. Former Atlanta mayor and judge Keisha Lance Bottoms was outside the jail as that surreal scene unfolded this week. And she's coming up first. Plus, the law firm of Weissman and Katiel is back. They're here to preview high stakes hearings tomorrow for both Fonnie Willis and Jack Smith. Also today, tragedy in Jacksonville, Florida, where a white gunman kills three black people and what authorities are investigating as a hate crime. Florida Congressman Maxwell Frost is standing by with his reaction. And later, my wide-ranging conversation with New Hampshire's Republican Governor Chris Sununu. I get his take on the first GOP debate and ask him where his party goes from here. So every once in a while, things happen in politics that sort of stop you dead in your tracks. Things you just know you're going to remember for a very long time. In 20 years of working in this world, I've seen a lot of them up close. But these moments do seem to be happening much more frequently now than I can remember. The word unprecedented has never been more precedented. There are also times when these stop everything you're doing moments do stand out because they tell the whole story. And there are times when you get more than one of them in a single week. The story of this week and the story of the Republican Party right now can be told through two images, two singular moments in time. The first, of course, is the release of the mugshot of former President Donald Trump. It was taken late this week after he was arrested and booked on charges that he attempted to overturn the results of an election he lost. And the second, all but two Republican candidates on a debate stage raising their hands, promising to support Trump, even if he is convicted in a court of law. Two images, when put side by side, say more than I or anyone else ever could about what is happening in this country right now. A former president of the United States, defiant in the face of four indictments and 91 criminal counts, wearing a mugshot like a badge of honor. Fundraising off of his alleged crimes. And six out of eight Republican challengers pledging to support him if, and likely when, he defeats them. When it comes to the Republican Party, that is the whole story. Now, we don't know yet where this is all going, and we don't know exactly how this legal process or this electoral process, frankly, will end. But those two images from this week do tell us exactly where we are right now. Joining me now is the former mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottom. She's also a former magistrate judge in Atlanta, and she was outside the jail as Donald Trump was booked this week. Mayor Bottoms, it's great to see you. Thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. So I, I want to start with what happened this week. Uh, you were outside of the Fulton County Jail on Thursday evening watching it uh, as a former mayor and a former magistrate judge. Describe to us what the scene was like on the ground. 
Well, thank you for having me. It really was surreal, Jen. You're right. I used to work inside of that jail, signing warrants, uh, presiding over first appearance hearings. Uh, and to see the circus atmosphere, obviously, was something we don't normally see outside of the Fulton County Jail. Uh, there was a lot of anger, a lot of hatred in the air. When I pulled up, many of those outside the jail thought that I was the district attorney, Fonnie Willis. Mm -hmm. And they began to very angrily chat, uh, chant, lock her up, lock her up. Uh, and so it was something that I've never seen before outside of the jail. Um, but kudos to Sheriff Patrick Labatt and the coordination of agencies across the metro area who really kept the area safe and secure. So it sounds like a lot of the people you interacted with or you saw were not proponents of Fonnie Willis's. You do know her uh, from for many years. How do you think she deals with I know she's tough, but how do you think she deals with these attacks from Donald Trump and from some of his followers? I describe Fani as fearless. Even when we were very young attorneys working in a community-based law firm, the Kendall Law Firm, uh, even when we should have had fear, Fani was always a fearless attorney. And you have to remember, uh, Fani is not new to this. Fani began her career uh, working in a small law, law firm, as I mentioned. She has worked as a solicitor. She's worked as a judge. Uh, she's been a seasoned prosecutor for many years, prosecuting, leading the prosecution of some of the most notorious cases in Fulton County, uh, even the trial, the RICO trial of 35 educators in Fulton County. I believe 12 of them went to trial with 11 of them being convicted in a very big cheating scandal. Uh, it was one of the longest trials in the history of our state going about eight months. So Fonnie knows what she's doing. She's prosecuted murderers and rapists. She has a big gang trial going on right now with some very popular rappers in the city. So she's not afraid. Uh, and I believe the more that uh, there's an attempt to intimidate her, I think the more that you will see her re re really focus on getting a conviction and making sure that she sends a very big and stern message that this won't be allowed in the state of Georgia. I, it's so amazing how everyone who knows her well describes her as just being tough and fearless. It does say a lot about her. So you also know Georgia law quite well. I think we're all watching this thinking what could possibly happen if Trump violates the parameters, the strict ones that were set uh, in the as the terms of his release. So if he violates them, it's not up to Fonnie Willis, it's up to the judge. But what are the options? What, what, what would be possible here? Well, what we've seen with defendants in the state of Georgia, and we've seen the district attorney's office do this, you will go and ask that their bond be revoked. And remember, all of these defendants are out on bond with conditions set accordingly. Uh, and they have very publicly said you can't intimidate witnesses. And there were and it, there was a list of things that these defendants could not do. And I expect that whether it be Donald Trump or any of the other defendants, if they violate any of those terms, that you will see the district attorney's office go before a judge, ask that those bonds be revoked. We've seen it happen. As I've mentioned, there's a big case going on right now, big RICO trial with the YSL group going on right now in Fulton County. We've seen the district attorney ask for some of those bonds to be revoked, and they have made it very clear that they will not treat these defendants any differently. And so I think that it would be at their own 
risk of freedom uh, to test the limits of the district attorney in this case. Uh, we have a judge who's new to the bench, so we don't have a lot of background on how he operates and, and what his tendencies are. But I do expect that Fonnie Willis and her office will be very aggressive. So we don't know what the judge will do. Of course, we, we rarely would. But it's feasible that Trump or others who violate these terms could be thrown in jail. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to remember, even this judge, um, even though the law says that these defendants should be booked and mug shots uh, should be taken, this judge had the authority to even waive that happening, as I understand it, that he, uh, you know, the judge has the, the opportunity to issue an order and to waive certain conditions. And this judge has not done that. So I don't expect that they will be treated any differently, uh, just as they've not been treated differently during this entire process. So you've also said, which which stuck out to me, that you wouldn't be surprised if Trump's new lawyer, who has a new legal team, Steve, uh, Steve Sadow, tries to negotiate a plea. Why do you think that? And what do you think that might look like? Well, I've seen him negotiate pleas before. He's gone to mm. trial before. He, he's not afraid to try cases, but I've also seen him negotiate pleas in very high-profile cases. And quite frankly, when uh, I saw that he was now representing Donald Trump. The first thing I thought was that there may be a plea negotiation in the works. I don't know that to be the case, but that would not be unusual for this attorney. And when you look at the amount of time that these defendants are facing, uh, this is a RICO. This is a RICO trial. Minimum of five years in prison, that's a significant amount of time. And when you have this many defendants, um, and, and clearly they're not all on the same page because we're seeing motions being filed that they are not coordinated, it would not be unusual uh, for some of these defendants to strike plea deals, uh, including Donald Trump. Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending the time with me this afternoon. And coming up, Neil Katyal and Andrew Weissman on crucial hearings tomorrow in the Georgia case and Jack Smith's election interference case. Plus, my conversation with New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. I ask him about the Trump mugshot and how he thinks it'll play in the Republican primary. And later, the right wing had a bit of a meltdown over a tweet I sent out during the debate on Wednesday night. Some thoughts on that later this hour. We're just getting started today and we'll be right back. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. three years, Donald Trump has falsely claimed to basically anyone who will listen that the 2020 election was rigged and stolen. 
Make no mistake, this election was stolen from you, from me, and from the country. We had a rigged election. The presidential election was rigged and stolen. I, I said, you owe me votes. votes because the election was rigged. That election was rigged. They rigged the presidential election of 2020. It was rigged. It was a rigged election. But in some remarks on Thursday after his arrest, booking, and mugshot, he gave a slightly different statement. Listen closely and see if you can spot the difference. This should never happen. If you challenge an election, you should be able to challenge an election. I thought the election was a rigged election, a stolen election. I thought the election was a rigged election. Did you hear that? The I thought is a new qualifier. And that subtle change in tune could be indicative of new advice Trump is getting. Just before he was booked at the Fulton County Jail, it was announced that the former president shook up his Georgia legal team, adding veteran criminal defense lawyer Stephen Sadow. Sadow is known for representing high-profile musical artists like Rick Ross, Usher, T.I., Gunna, and Ty Dolla Sign. So some of the biggest names in hip-hop and the former president of the United States. And that shakeup may be reflective of a need to change tactics. Because to put it plainly, District Attorney Fonnie Willis does not appear to be messing around. This week, in a response to one defendant's motion for a speedy trial, DA Willis told the court that her team is ready to go to trial on October 23rd. That's just under two months away and a sign of a very aggressive stance from the Fulton County District Attorney. By popular demand, joining me now is who else but the law firm. Neil Katiel is the former acting U.S. Solicitor General, and Andrew Weissman is the former FBI General Counsel. And I'm so thrilled to have you here on set with me today, Neil. So there's so many different components of this week, and I want to dig into as many as possible. Uh, a judge granted Kenneth Cheesebro's request for a speedy trial. Sidney Powell filed her own request. There are also reports that John Eastman is asking for the same thing. That means that a number of these co-defendants would be separated from Donald Donald Trump. What does that mean for Trump's case? Okay, so there's two January 6th cases. There's the Georgia one going yes. on that you're talking about now, yes. and then there's the federal one, which Jack Smith has asked for a trial to begin on January 2nd of 2024. With respect to this request from Ken Chesbrough, who is one of the architects of the January 6th coup, uh, he said, I want, a I want a trial right away on October 23rd. The, uh, Fonnie Willis, the prosecutor, says, yeah, game on. The judge says, fine, game on. So what this means is that the first January 6th trial will happen. It will likely be in Georgia, in Georgia, and it will likely be just Mr. Chesbro or perhaps with Sidney Powell, who's also asked for a, a fast trial. But it won't likely involve Donald Trump or the other 16 defendants uh, that are named in the indictment. But that means it's a signal this stuff is starting to happen. And if you're Donald Trump, you've got to be very worried. So, Andrew, just to pick it up where Neil left it there, why should Donald Trump be worried? What does it mean for his case? So I think there's the court of public opinion and there's also the issue of just, you know, the legal court. So just let's focus on the court of public opinion. Um, as you mentioned, Jen, in your intro, I mean, what Donald Trump is trying to do is litigate this in the court of public opinion and just spin facts to say this election was stolen. Um, as Neil pointed out, that is very soon going to be in a forum that he cannot control and he won't even be a defendant in that courtroom. So there will be facts and law um, that is going to be going on at the end of October in Georgia. And there actually is going to be a hearing tomorrow with respect to Mark Meadows, where again, 
facts and law will be presented and Donald Trump will not be there to spin his version. So I think just from, from both from sort of what's going to go on in court, but also his whole play, which is to try this in a place where he can just make up the facts mm. and the law that he wants, that is going to be really hard for him going forward because you have this these divergent defendants um, wanting to get into court sooner. So, Neil, Andrew referenced this Mark Meadows trial. There's there's a lot happening tomorrow, actually. So let's start with the Mark Meadows trial. He wants to move the venue from the state venue to a federal court. Uh, what are you watching for in this trial? And what happens exactly if any of these co-defendants who are asking for that are successful? Yeah, so there's a really old law of Congress that says if you're a federal officer performing a federal function and you have a federal defense, if you've been indicted in state court, you can move that to federal court. It still means the state prosecutors control it all. So, for example, Donald, you know, if Donald Trump wins in 24 or some other Republican, he can't terminate the state prosecution. But it does change things. So most importantly, and this is, I think, what Trump cares about the most, there are cameras in Georgia state courtrooms. Mm-hmm. There are not cameras in the federal system. So do you system. think what Mark Meadows cares about, too? Oh, absolutely. I think they all care about They want this trial. They do not want the American public to see this trial. They are scared like vampires of sun light here. And so I think that's part of it. Part of it is also to try and manipulate who's on the jury and things like that. So I don't think this removal motion that Meadows has filed is going to be successful because it does require you to be performing a federal function. And last time I checked, organizing a coup, even if you're the chief of staff to the president, isn't part of your official job Right, and the chief of staff isn't typically calling the secretary of state of Georgia. As a non-lawyer, I can just state that as a person who's worked in politics. Andrew, I wanted to ask you about um, one of the subtle changes I noticed, but again, I'm not a lawyer, in Trump's tone, where he basically said, he went from saying the election is rigged to I thought the election was rigged. He also changed legal representation. What do you read into that, and does it mean anything? Sure. Um, So good pickup on that. Um, I do think that if you're his lawyer, you do want to switch to an argument that this is what he believed. He believed at the time that the election was rigged, but that he's not saying and it's not necessary for him to prove that, in fact, it was. In other words, he could have been mistaken. Um, I don't think that's going to fly. I mean, it's way, way, way too late in the day. I mean, this is the, you know, since you you can introduce all of his statements, one of the questions the jury would have is, I'm sorry, why now? After all this mm-hmm. time, is there evidence that suddenly camp came out yesterday um, that changed your mind? So I, I understand why the lawyer would might want to do that, but I don't think that's going to work. If you were going to make that argument, you needed to do it a long time ago. And then why counsel changed um, that's, you know, no one knows for sure. Um, obviously, it could be a question of money um, because Donald Trump has a history of not paying for his counsel. But I think it also could be um, if Donald Trump felt like he wasn't sufficiently controlling his counsel. Um, and, you know, one of the things that everyone pointed out that were the bail conditions and that Donald Trump's were very different I personally think that the lawyer, his previous lawyer, was right not to challenge that and to accept Fonnie Willis's sort of ultimatum, ultimatum that these are the criteria because the, the downside for the lawyer was that you'd have a hearing and there would be issues and it would be presented to the court. That's something you would really not want to do if you were representing Donald Trump, have it laid out all of the ways in which he had um, harassed um, various 
witnesses, judges, prosecutors, et cetera. So I think uh, we'll see. I mean, I, I think the new lawyer is good, um, but it's odd to change lawyers so late in the day. So, Neil, not to leave out a major hearing or major development that we could learn tomorrow, which is the date of the trial for the uh, case in uh, against Trump and overturning the election. Uh, what are you expecting? What are you watching for as we look to hear more from that? Tomorrow? So this is the big enchilada tomorrow. Judge Chutkin in D.C. is going to set the date for Donald Trump's federal January 6th trial. The prosecutors have asked, as I said, for January 2nd of 2024. Donald Trump's lawyers literally filed a motion saying 2026. Okay, Uh, I'm sorry, that is laughable. It's not credible. And I think Judge Chutkin is going to have none of it tomorrow. And in particular, what Jack Smith points out is the request for April 2026 was based on totally cooked data. They basically said, well, RICO prosecutions take this long, but they only looked at the COVID era. So they included all the delays, you know, involving quarantine and the like. It is not a credible motion. And it made even harder, as Andrew just pointed out a moment ago, by Donald Trump repeatedly violating the conditions of, you know, basically pretrial silence and trying to poison the jury pool. And what Judge Shutkin's already said is, look, you do that, I'm going to move the trial up. So I suspect that this trial is going to happen on or about the prosecutor's request of January 2024, as the American public deserve. A lot. Everybody better eat their Wheaties and drink their, you know, spinach smoothie tomorrow. Neil Katyal, Andrew Weissman, thank you as always. Coming up, I get New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu to weigh in on the Trump mugshot and the first Republican primary debate. That's next. The scourge of gun violence and the scourge of racism have once again collided this time in Jacksonville, Florida. We felt like this was important to talk about today because it's important that we never become too numb to either of these cancers. On Saturday afternoon, a gunman opened fire at a Dollar General store in Jacksonville and killed three innocent people before killing himself. The Jacksonville sheriff says he wore a tactical vest, was armed with an AR-style rifle and Glock handgun, and had one clear motive, to target black people. The high-powered weapons that he used to kill two black men and one woman were covered in swastikas, drawn on with white pen. The FBI has now opened a federal civil rights investigation into the shooting and will investigate it as a hate crime. And someone who continues to talk about this crisis, even when it's difficult, is Florida Congressman and gun safety activist Maxwell Frost, and he joins me now. Congressman, thank you so much for taking the time this afternoon. And I I wanted to talk to you in part because I feel like it's easy to get so numb to these uh, mass shootings. Um, And especially in this case, it should be sobering to everyone that in 2023, we have a shooter with swastikas on his guns targeting black people. Do you feel, as someone who's so close to these mass shootings, that this epidemic is getting worse? It is, Jen. It is getting worse. I mean, we just found out um, a little over a year ago that now the leading cause of death, and the way I like to explain this is if you have a child under the age of 18, and God forbid they were to die, the most likely reason is because of a bullet. And I think that's a shame and a failure in one of the most resourceful and one of the most rich countries on the face of the earth. And so this this is horrible. We lose 100 lives a day due to gun violence. And we're seeing an uptick in hate crimes of people who are arming themselves and literally going out on the streets to find black people to hunt. 
We saw it happen in Buffalo. We saw it happen yesterday. In fact, that shooter, the racist bigot, went to an HBCU first, was turned away by security, and then walked into this dollar store um, to murder three black people. And it's not a surprise because we have leaders in this state that are stoking the flames of racial hatred, bigotry, and anti-Semitism. And so it's no longer just a culture war. They are waging a real war on people of color and on poor people in this state. You've said you think Governor Ron DeSantis should come back to Florida and call a special session. I'm not going to ask you how likely you think that is. I want to know what would you like to see happen if there was a special session? What would you what would be the ideal? It's the same ask I've had for the governor for years, and it's to actually take action on gun violence prevention. He needs to do that. And he also needs to take actual steps to move away and stop championing and stop embracing this far right wing movement that is the home of the shooter from yesterday. That is the home of these neo-Nazis that are marching around Disney and marching around Central Florida almost every week now. The governor has been embracing this movement. It was Andrew Gillum on the debate stage who said, I'm not calling him a racist. I'm just saying the racist think he's a racist. And that still rings true today. And in fact, I look at someone like Governor DeSantis and ignoring it and not saying anything about it and releasing. He released a 45 second video yesterday in Iowa on the side of a building. Um, that's not enough. We need real leadership. And so the hope is that they could call a special session, come together and pass laws to help end gun violence. In fact, the last time I brought this up was during my campaign when the governor came here to Central Florida to do a private event that you had to pay to get into. I interrupted the governor and said, not cursing, not yelling, pleading, please do something about gun violence. And he's done nothing. In fact, it's worse than nothing, Jen. They passed this permitless carry bill, which essentially says any person can have any gun, any place, anywhere, anytime in the state of Florida. And it's no shock that gun violence has gone up since that bill was passed. In addition to the permitless carry, there have also been obviously a number of problematic pieces of legislation signed by the governor in recent months. You're also calling for the Department of Justice to investigate what's happening in Florida. It sounds, as I've heard you describe this, like you're making a connection between the changing of a number of these laws and an increase in violence. What do you want the Department of Justice to specifically look into in Florida? I think they need to look at the totality of what's going on. And you said it right. It's all completely connected here. It's, you know, the governor's uh, uh, Department of Education came out. Middle schoolers this year in the state of Florida will learn that black folks who were enslaved received personal benefit from it. What that does is show that black lives should be devalued. That shouldn't be seen as full humans. And it's not just about the kids. It's about adults as well. And it gives credence and a pass to these bigots so they can uh, uh, commit horrible acts of terrorism like what we saw yesterday. So I think the Department of Justice does need to look into this, look at all of these laws, look at how the governor has been abusing his power to remove people from office who he disagrees with. Because here's the thing, Jen. Right now, it's Florida. Right now, we have these isolated incidents throughout the state. But this is how these dangerous movements start. And so it is incumbent upon our government and the federal government to nip it in the bud now in the state of Florida and say we don't want authoritarian far right wing movements to take over government. It's not about left versus right. It's not about the Democrats versus Republicans. This is about the people versus the problem. And we've seen even conservatives come out and say they don't like what's going on in this state. 
Um, it, it, it's a it's a state of fear right now. Elected officials are fearful. Uh, uh, companies are fearful. And so there's a lot that needs to be done here. Our power as Democrats right now in the federal government are with the administration. And so I hope that the Department of Justice will launch an investigation and use the tools that they have at their disposal to help us. We need help in this state right now. Congressman Maxwell Frost, thank you for being fearless during a very fearful time. Uh, up next, I'll ask New Hampshire's Republican governor, Chris Nunu, about the mugshot seen around the world. And later, one talking point from the Republican debate that I just feel compelled to call out. We're back after a quick break. Donald Trump may not have physically been on the debate stage Wednesday night, but his presence loomed largely over it, even if it took the moderators nearly an hour to even say his name. As you would expect in any normal primary debate, there were some substantive disagreements between the candidates. But what was not normal was a question that drew near unanimous agreement. If former President Trump is convicted in a court of law, would you still support him as your party's choice? Please raise your hand if you would. Just hold on. So just to be clear, Governor Christie, you were kind of late to the game there, but no, you raised I'm, your hand. No, I'm doing this. Look, look, I'm doing this. And I know this. you. That was easily the most memorable moment of the night. So even if we did see some important distinctions between the candidates. It's hard to see how any of that matters as long as Donald Trump leads the race. But I sat down with someone who firmly believes it's Trump who won't matter once the votes are cast, New Hampshire's Governor Chris Sununu. You have not been afraid to speak out about Donald Trump's um, indictments, about his actions in attempting to overturn the outcome of an election, about holding onto classified documents. Mm -hmm. I could name more. It took 51 minutes in that debate for any yeah. of those topics to come up. What did you make of that? Oh, that was perfect. Because that's about Donald Trump. That's not about the future of this country. That's not about turning. Look, um, Republicans are trying to save the country. Donald Trump is trying to save himself. Right. So when you, it comes to a debate, we don't want to just kind of be rehashing yesterday's news. We want to be forward. We want to be out about 2024. We want to be about what we can bring to the table with the economy and securing the border and, you know, and energy independence and all the, these sort of things. So um, huge opportunity there. And, and they grabbed onto it. They didn't fall for the trap, so to say, of talking about uh, the big guy. Now, the, the forward looking message works well. I've done a few campaigns myself. Yeah. But there is a reality here that Trump is still double digits ahead. Mm -hmm. And some of these uh, issues that are backward looking, as you've described yeah. them, and some of the other candidates described in the same way, are about policy issues. Sure. Your hand uh, the handling of classified documents, the sharing of nuclear secrets, potentially, how you're handling democracy and viewing it. Right. Don't you see the views of these candidates as relevant and important to voters? Well, sure. But I mean, look, when it comes to all that, Donald Trump will have to have to you know, have his day in court and all that sort of thing, see how all those indictments play out. Um, these candidates right now should really be focusing on what they're about, their backgrounds. A lot of folks didn't even know Vivek. I mean, I'm in the world, you're in the world, we're, we're talking about all these candidates all the time. The average Republican voter had barely even seen Vivek Ramaswamy, and then they got to see him for the first time. And maybe they liked him, maybe they didn't. They got excited. Obviously, 
that he was attacked a lot. I think Vivek did very well. I mean, considering he's never stood on a debate stage. That's a, I've, done, I've stood on some debate stages. It's a hard thing to do. Now, let's focus on Vivek Ramaswamy for a moment, because you're right. Unless you're a political nerd or wonk like both of us, you may not have heard of him or been right. watching him. Uh, he has been moving up in the polls in New Hampshire, including mm-hmm. in New Hampshire, as Chris Christie has been as well. Um, he was very energetic at the debate uh, last th- yeah. this week. Um, but he also had some things to say about policy issues that were pretty problematic as it relates to the electorate. I mean, he said climate change is a hoax. Do you think that is something yeah. that you would want to see on the platform of your party? I Look, there's no doubt he took some positions that, for me personally, are, are, are a challenge. Um, for Do they connect with the Republican base? I don't know. I can tell you all those candidates could win in November of 24, and that's exciting. Donald Trump can't win in November of 24. The math doesn't work out. If you're supporting Donald Trump today, you're effectively handing it to Kamala Harris, potentially, uh, down the road. So I think the opportunity is a new face, fresh ideas. But I think Vivek, Haley, Pence, um, uh, DeSantis, they all did very, very well. The other event this week that I don't think anybody can characterize as good for Trump is getting his mugshot taken and released in a Trump will Fulton, love it. Fulton County courthouse. He'll be selling T-shirts within minutes of that, it being taken. That may be true, but do you think that it's good for him politically? Do you think having a mugshot out there changes anything in the Republican electorate? It doesn't change anything, but it allows him to maintain his presence in the media, his image. People will be talking about it, What not just what he does with the mugshot, but all the drama that he wants to keep building off of it. He wants this drama to keep going. Give him a fifth and sixth indictment. He'll love it because what, it keeps him in the What about with independence? News. I mean, New Hampshire, live free or die. He doesn't care. All he cares about right now is getting the nomination. He can't win in November. Independents hate it. There's no way Donald Trump will win anything above 31% of the independents, which is why Republicans as a whole will get crushed if he's on. Uh, look, as bad as he would be as, as being on top of the ticket for because we'll lose the presidency. He hurts school board races. He hurts governorships, Congress races, congressional races, Senate races. We will lose all these seats like we did in 22. Your friend, uh, Governor Chris Christie, I think he's your friend. I think it's safe to say they're all all your friends. friends. Um, He has also not hesitated in calling out Mm. uh, his concerns about Donald Trump's behavior, his actions, criminal Mm. indictments. He also waited until an hour in almost to the debate. Did that surprise you? Did you think that was the right strategy? Look, I think uh, to talk about Trump. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's definitely the right strategy because so, for example, with Chris Christie, he's known as really the aggressive going to bash on Trump. And, and he's very uh, uh, validated in that. But he, he wanted he took the opportunity to remind folks he was a governor. He was a CEO. He had made tough decisions. He had gotten stuff done uh, with even with Democrats in his legislature. And that's leadership. Leadership is about saying no matter what hand you deal me, I can win. Right. It isn't just give me Republicans and then maybe I'll get something done. We get used to that, but we shouldn't we shouldn't accept that. So he took that opportunity. Vivek and and, and Governor DeSantis, they're kind of known as the culture warrior, anti-woke guys. But they need to broaden their message a little bit and talk about fiscal discipline and draining the swamp and limited government and returning power to the states. You've also talked about how the issue of abortion is a bit of a tricky one for the Republican Party. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you've said versions of that. Uh, The candidates did seem to have a little bit of trouble with that this week um, in the debate. Uh, Obviously, Mike Pence has a strong view Mm. on abortion. Uh, Nikki Haley, they kind of had a back and forth about it. What did you make of that argument? And did you see anything in there that you'd want to see the 
Republican yeah. platform be or the Republican nominee be saying yeah. as the policy of the party? Well, one of the consistent things I saw, I don't know if it was with all of them, but a lot of them really do understand it's going to come down to the states, right? What California does is going to be different than Mississippi. Um, they debated a little bit whether there should be a minimum threshold. Um, personally, I don't believe we should be touching it at the federal level. A, a few of them definitely agree with that. Although but, a few of them think there should be a ban, which I know you're not yeah, for. No, not for at all. Again, it's, it's a state's issue and I'm a governor. I'm a state's guy, right? So understanding that Mississippi and California are going to be different, that's exactly what Roe v. when they overturned Roe v. Wade, they said, look, state, you're going to you can you can now decide if that if that's where you want to go. You've called for narrowing the field. The field sure. needs to be narrowed. Who do you think needs to be take a look in the mirror and figure out if they really need to be in the race? Well, I think the, the candidates that weren't on the stage last night to start with, I think they have to have some tough conversations. And I think the, the most of them will make the, the right decision um, unless there's some real spark. They see them getting them into the, the higher threshold of even the second debate. I think by Thanksgiving, Probably two or three others probably have to drop out if they're still in that low, those low single digits, whoever it might be. They probably have to say, okay, we gave it a try. It's not working. Then you get about five or six candidates going with Trump going into Iowa, maybe three or four going into New Hampshire. And if it gets down to one-on-one, -on -one, as I said, he, he can't get over 50%. Uh, Republicans will find a different option because by then they've explored the candidates, they've gotten excited, they've rallied around one. Uh, the numbers for that one individual start moving forward. Trumps aren't going any higher. So uh, there's going to be momentum. Political momentum is a very real thing. And so it all could, could steamroll right at the right time between, New Hampshire, between Iowa and New Hampshire going into Super Tuesday. Well, we will see if any of these Republican candidates take the advice of Governor Kristen Nunu. Up next, right-wing Twitter was very, very mad at me this week. I'll explain why after break. Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com app to download. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. This week, as I was watching the first Republican debate, I sent out a tweet that seemed to really strike a nerve in the right wing. Here it is. No one supports abortion up until birth. I wrote that because there is a pervasive and misleading talking point that is used by a number of right wing leaders, including presidential candidates on the stage, suggesting that Democrats are advocating for and even rooting for late term abortions of babies who could live outside the womb. Just take a listen to some of the answers in the debate on Wednesday night. We're better than what the Democrats are selling. We are not going to allow abortion all the way up till birth, and we will hold them accountable for their extremism. We cannot let states like California, New York, and Illinois have abortions on demand up until the day of birth. What I would love is for someone to ask Biden and Kamala Harris, are they for 38 weeks? Are they for 39 weeks? Are they for 40 weeks? This wasn't just some throwaway line for applause on the debate stage. This is a talking point Republican presidential candidates use repeatedly on the trail. The platform formerly known as Twitter doesn't exactly leave the space and the room to really lay down the facts. I do love facts, but I want to make sure that all of you are equipped with them. This claim that Democrats support abortion up until the moment of birth is entirely misleading. 
First of all, abortions past the point of fetal viability do not happen often. They are incredibly rare. And those that do happen involve agonizing emotional and ethical decisions. According to the CDC, the vast majority of abortions in the United States, over 80% in 2020, happened before 10 weeks of pregnancy. And over 90% take place in the first 12 weeks. Less than 1%, 1% happen after 21 weeks of pregnancy. If you look state by state, you see a similar pattern. As compiled by the Washington Post, in Virginia since 2000, an abortion after 28 weeks has been performed only in three of the last 22 years. In Oklahoma in 2021, only six out of nearly 6,000 abortions took place after 21 weeks. And in Colorado, where the Boulder Abortion Clinic specializes in late-term abortions, less than 2% of nearly 12,000 abortions in 2021 took place after 21 weeks, and just 60 took place after 25 weeks or later. So again, this does not happen often. And when it does, you can see how painful this really is through personal stories. Director of that Boulder Clinic told the Washington Post that in his experience, virtually all women seeking a late-term abortion are devastated by the prospect. He said, quote, in an average week at my office, 25 to 50 percent of the patients have some serious catastrophic fetal abnormality. And there are some weeks in which this is true for 100 percent of the patients. These are uniformly desired pregnancies, and the patients are generally grief-stricken to be ending the pregnancy. Mothers have described in heart-wrenching detail having to make the decision to end their pregnancy to save their own life or because they were told the baby that they were so excited for would not survive or would suffer. Are most Democrats in favor of legislation that allows for this? Yes, for all the reasons I just outlined. At the end of the day, the point here is that no one is rooting for late-term abortions. No one is running on the platform of aborting viable babies. No one is selling late-term abortions as Ron DeSantis claims. No one, not Joe Biden, not Kamala Harris, not Hillary Clinton, not Nancy Pelosi, or any other politician demonized by the right wing, roots for more late-term abortions. None of them do. What is happening here is an attempt by Republican presidential candidates and other leaders who know their views on women's health care are out of touch with the public. They're trying to change the parameters of the debate. They're doing that by inaccurately describing the positions of leaders on the other side. As you just heard, as I just outlined, abortions in later stages of pregnancy are extremely rare, and they're almost always the result of a devastating choice to save the life of the mother or because a baby that a couple desperately wanted cannot survive outside the womb. It is not a preference. It is a personal tragedy for these couples. Are Ron DeSantis and Tim Scott in favor of a mother dying as a result of her pregnancy? If a doctor determines a baby cannot survive outside of the womb, should a mother be required to carry that baby to term? And those choices should not be made by any politician or any legislature. They should be made by the woman carrying the baby and by her doctor. That is what Democrats are trying to protect. That is what they are for. This is not politics. This is health care. We're coming back after a quick break. Stay with us. 
A quick note about something that's coming up tonight on MSNBC. Allende is the latest installment of the MSNBC Films documentary series, The Turning Point. The film follows the journey of the young women on Afghanistan's national soccer team who fled from the Taliban after U.S. troops withdrew. You can watch Allende tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on MSNBC. That does it for me today. We'll be back here next Sunday at noon Eastern. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.